3: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com.
4: Welcome back to Overnight America. I'm Ryan Recker, Ryan Recker Radio on Facebook. A little bit later, we're going to talk to another author who is going to be participating as part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. To start the hour off, we're going to welcome back a guest we had just a few months ago. His name is John Pessa, author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. John, how are you? Good,
0: Ryan. How are you doing?
4: Good. This uh, book has been getting some great reviews. And when I had you on the show last, you wouldn't believe the amount of people that reached out to me. They all oh, wanted to you. hear the interview. Great, great feedback on it. And even when I go to Amazon, this is rare to see anymore. So I, I try to bring up the book and I, I kind of skim through some reviews. You have 264 reviews, five star reviews. A total. It's unbelievable. I've never seen normally a, a good book has four to four and a half stars. I've never seen that many ratings on a book that have uh, and still it be five stars so very impressive
0: oh thank you i'll tell you what i give uh i give a lot of credit to yogi who was a great subject and i think right now people are looking for to feel good and yogi just made you feel good you know
4: yeah well that's the thing Uh, yogi a life behind the mask is the name of the biography and you're going to be part of the saint louis jewish book festival it's virtual this year i'm excited about that Oh, this is great. Your night is that Wednesday, November 4th. So you can get tickets to watch and be a part of it virtually. It's seven o'clock that Wednesday, November 4th night and tickets are available. You can find out more at the Jewish Book Festival website. Just do a quick search through the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. It's been going on for many years. But I guess if we were to start off and try to get an idea of what made Yogi memorable, what made him unique, why do people love him so much so many years after his passing?
0: Well, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons. One, he was a, just an incredible baseball player and, and played uh, on a team. He was on the Yankees for seven full, 17 full seasons, and he was in the World Series 14 times, and he won 10 of them. And so that, that's going to make you popular. But he was the kind of guy, you looked at Joe DiMaggio and you said, I'm not Joe DiMaggio. You know, you look at Ted Williams and you go, uh, you know, Ted Williams, I'm not Ted Williams. You look at Yogi and he's like your guy next door. I mean, he was about 5'8", you know, muscular guy, but he, you know, he looked like the average person. And and like an average man. And I think people just related to him. He was, even with Mickey Mantle... The the now late Whitey Ford on the team, even with Joe DiMaggio on the team early, and Phil Rizzuto, Yogi was always the guy that that was the most in demand to speak on the Yankees, and I think people just 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 really r- related to him on, on a human level.
4: He's a hardworking guy. Now, and I remember the last time we spoke, you talked about all the time you spent here in St. Louis going down to the hill, talking to people that knew him, kind of doing a walk and seeing some of the memorable spots where Yogi grew up. And I I love that side of the story, too, because you talk about the hill in your book and the the origins of Yogi. So a lot of uh, people here, of course, pique their interest when they learn about something local, a tie, a local tie.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you what, Yogi. I mean, he loves St. Louis, and I think if he would have been signed by the Cardinals instead of being turned down by Branch Rickey, um, I, I think he would have been um, thrilled to to have played for the hometown team. And can you imagine him and, M- and Musial in the lineup at the same time? <laughs> I mean, that would have that, that was that's one heck of a one two punch. You know, both of them at their primes. And, uh, and it was tough for him to, uh, to leave um, St. Louis. He always loved coming back. You know, when the Browns left, it was, it was tough because him and his teammates couldn't come, come, come over and have uh, Mama Berra's uh, Italian food. Um, but it was, it was tough for him to, to leave. But, you know, New York offered him uh, so much more in terms of um, off-the-field opportunities. So he did what was best for his family. Um, but he loved, he loved living in St. Louis.
4: Yeah, I'm hoping you can tell that story about. I'm trying to remember it. Was there a tryout where they would go, and there was yeah. a couple of players there? I gotta hear that story again because it was okay, great. Okay, you
0: know, Red Shandians, uh told me this story um, a year or two before he passed, and we were in the in Bush Stadium um, in this giant laundry room with they industrial size washers and dryers, and they put a recliner there. Um, a massage recliner for Red, and he sat there and we talked about this. And he told me a story I'd never heard or read, and I had read an awful lot about Yogi, that there was a tryout. They used to have, they used to put ads in papers um, and, for, and invite kids to come in and try out for the local major league baseball team. And so, in this particular one, a lot of kids showed up. It, it stretched over two days. There was more than a thousand kids there, Red said, and it came down to eight of them. He didn't remember five, but the three that he did remember was himself, Yogi Barra, then Lottie Barra, and and Joe Garagioa. and they took him to Sherman to Sherman Park, and excuse me, Forest Park, and uh, you know for a private workout. And Red said he pitched to Yogi, and Red was a year or so older than Yogi, and he thought he had, a, I mean, he had a good arm, he thought he was a good pitcher. He said, I could never get the ball past him, and the sound the ball made when it hit the bat was something he'd never heard before or since, and he said he was the best hitter that, that he ever saw. And um, you know, Joe Garagiola was a, was a nice ball player, but he was uh, Red was stunned when Branch Ricci didn't sign Yogi, and Branch Ricci didn't make a lot of mistakes. Uh, this one was a big one, and he told Yogi that he thought that I'm saying this for your own good. You're only going to be a AAA player, and we want players who can go all the way.
4: Oh, man. I, you know, you hear things like that, and you're recalling some of these stories by talking to people that knew them. Like, you you, yeah. you learn these stories firsthand, and you're talking to living history. It's pretty amazing yeah. that. It's also interesting to think that we're not that far removed from pretty remarkable things in our own history, not just, you know, American history, but, you know, sports like this and baseball has changed so much over the years. And even this past year, we go back and wonder— uh, like when we were uh, all locked down during the coronavirus, what did we do? We went back to old games. We replayed old I, classic games because yeah. people still love hearing the names. They love hearing the stories and things. And and that's kind of the the wonder, the beauty of books like this—a biography on Yogi Berra with all that he, uh, went on in his life some of the things that you mention in this book, and by the way, uh, author John Pessa joining us here, he's going to be part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. His night is going to be on Wednesday, November 4th, so if you wanted to find out ways to check out that, just go online to their website, do a quick search, but I I, I get a lot of admiration for players like, like Yogi, who can just be down-to-earth, relatable, but from what I understand, a lot of these players were just down-to-earth and relatable because they had to be. A lot of them were neighborhood kids, and Hi. a lot of them had other jobs on the side you know not all of them were superstars getting paid big money
0: (laughs) i mean yogi worked um at sears and roebuck in st louis he worked um selling christmas trees on the corner with joe in st louis um he was a head waiter at Ruggieri's, um which was a you know big italian restaurant in st louis um he worked i mean he he uh him and philadelphia when when he moved to um um, to New Jersey, they sold men's and boys' suits in the off season. <laughs> so yeah, they were they lived in your neighborhood. They were part of the fabric of life um, that you lived. I mean, it wasn't. If you grew up in 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 uh, in New Jersey, you saw Yogi Berra walking around on the streets, um, yeah. along with a lot of other Yankee ball players. You know, if you were in Brooklyn, you saw Jackie Robinson and and Gil Hodges um, walking around the street because that's where they lived. And, and he is, was a much different—I think that, too, was part of what made Yogi so um, likable, is that he was just he was just a guy in the neighborhood.
4: Yeah, and they could just even come to your house. They might be your mail carrier. I mean, it's amazing the different jobs that all of these players would take. Absolutely. Do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to talk to you more about Yogi Berra. Sure, absolutely. So the book is out now called Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, a biography that gets rave reviews, five stars on uh, Amazon, where you can find it there if you wanted to pick it up. John Pessa, our interview with him coming up next and continuing on KMOX. Weekday mornings at 830,
3: Charlie Brennan and Amy Marks' provide perspective on KMOX and KMOX.com.
4: Joining us here is the author of a biography that's out called Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, covering Yogi Berra's life. John Pessa, you're participating inside of uh, this year's St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. It's awesome. It's virtual this year, meaning it's open to a lot of different people. And your talk is on Wednesday, November 4th at 7 o'clock. I know you talk to a lot of different people. I mean, I when I do a search of your name, it's it looks like you do a lot of different interviews, which is awesome because people love to talk about Yogi Berra. I'm wondering, over the last couple of months and people you spoke to about this book, have you learned anything new about Yogi
0: um i'll tell you what uh my favorite source in this um and i did like you said i did i talked about 150 people and and some people were were really nice they um they stuck with me the whole four years that i was doing this so you know a story kind of evolves you know you start at one place and you just keep learning more and more and then you you know more questions to, to answer i mean excuse me to ask and and bonnie um, Morse, who was Carmen Berra's, uh, y- uh, younger sister, one of, one of her sisters. Um, she still lives in St. Louis, um, and she was just so good at filling in the who Yogi was, you know, growing up from the day he met Carmen, um, you know, right through to, you know, visiting him in New Jersey and to the, to the day he died. And she just, she really, uh, made Yogi um human for me i mean i think that one of the things one of the reasons i wanted to do this book was i thought that yogi's uh persona kind of overshadowed both his hall of fame career which is amazing but also who he really was as as a as a person and you know a much more uh quiet uh, almost shy uh, person, not not the kind of not the person that you're, you see in the commercials. Um, and she said, and just you know, one thing just universally liked. And she said, about the only thing I could complain about Yogi is that he used to pinch me on the arm, and his hands were so strong, being a catcher, that he goes, he didn't realize how much that hurt. Um, but that was, she goes, that's about the worst thing I can say about my brother-in-law. Um, oh, which man. is that that's pretty good.
4: Do you, uh, have, did you visit Joya's? Because I know Yogi Berra would go in there and get the hot salami. He loved that sandwich. I, I wondered if you had a chance to try that. When no, you I, I
0: missed that one. Um, did did get the toasted ravioli on the hill, though. And yes. that was one of Yogi's favorites. And, and I could see why. It was, it was delicious. And so many good Italian restaurants up there.
4: Oh, man, it is something else. It's it, world class. It's been yeah. tough oh, the last absolutely. couple of months but I'll tell you, it is world-class food on the Hill. And now, uh, I don't know, uh, these different talks that you do and you kind of spread what you've learned about Yogi Berra in the biography, which is out now, called Yogi, A Light Behind the Mask, and author John Pessa joining us here on uh, Overnight America. I'm curious, what kind of things do you normally talk about when, like, for example, you're doing the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival on Wednesday, November 4th. When when you get up and you have a a talk on Yogi Berra, what's your main message that you want to portray about him?
0: Well, I mean, he led about as full and rich a life over ninety years as as anyone I could find. I mean, he just in, enjoyed life. He wanted to be a baseball player, and even though people told him, believe it or not, that that he'd never make it, um, he knew that he was that, how good he was, and he you know becomes a, a hall of famer. But just you know, his his. Uh, his his Hall of Fame personality, I think, is really the thing that, like you, as you started the show, about why people just relate to this man. I mean, there is no—if I say I did a book on Yogi Berra, I'll be in a room answering questions for two hours. I mean, people <laughs> yeah. just want to know of, about who this guy is, and and really to tell you the truth, you know, one of the things I learned from Yogi and about Yogi was um, Yogi didn't do talks. Yogi did um, Q and As. And Bob Burns, who was a legendary St. Louis baseball writer, used to go around St. Louis with him. um, And he would be the one that would conduct interviews. And he said, you know, I'm happy to come to your banquet, um, but, you know, I'm only going to do Q&As. And and I think answering people's, you know, what people want to know. I got lucky enough to spend four and a half years of my life and getting paid to do it to hear stories about Yogi Berra. I mean, how cool is that? And so, cool. and so, you know, whatever people want to know, what they're really interested in, and it changes from place to place. I mean, people in St. Louis are more interested in some things than people in New York. And I've talked to people all over the country, and really, that's kind of been an education too, to find out what, you know, what people are interested in about him and, you know, what they didn't know, like him volunteering for a secret mission in, uh, in World War II, um, and he ends up on the, you know, uh, 300 yards from the beach of Normandy, the fr- literally the first wave of boats to get to uh to to the battle and um and that he volunteered for that and and you know learning things like that and hearing about things like that would just it's just special and i got lucky to do this kind of job and so anything people want to ask me i'm really happy to answer them about yogi
4: yeah and and you write about baseball you cover baseball and as a journalist as a writer i'm curious if when you start to research in a player that you know is great, but you start to dig even deeper into a player like Yogi Berra, do you, do you start to? Does it influence the way you would rank him when it comes to the all-time great baseball players? Like what I mean is, you had this impression of him, you knew he is one of the greats, but then you start to research him, you talk to the people, and you think, wow, I can make a much stronger case that he should be moved up this list.
0: It's funny you should say that because that's exactly how I feel. I mean, I grew up as a uh, baby boomer living in New York, so Mickey Mantle was was every baby boomer's idol here in New York, and uh, Yogi was my father's favorite player. And he would because I didn't I didn't get to see Yogi in his prime. I saw him as a as a good platoon outfielder at the end of his career with the Yankees, and my father was the one who saw him in his prime, and. When I dug into his career, he was the best player on the best team in baseball. Yankees, 49-53, to 53 win five straight World Series. And the guy who is the best player on that team, the Mike Trout, the Aaron Judge, uh, you know, Albert Pujols, so that team is Yogi Berra, not Joe DiMaggio, not Mickey Mantle. And that's five straight championships, and no one's going to do that again. And, you know, the Mount Rushmore of Yankees is, is Ruth, Gehrig, DiMaggio, Mantle. And I'm as big a Mickey Mantle fan as you'd find. But after doing this book, i got to go. If, if Yogi's not, you know, does it, if he's at least 4B, four, four and I probably would put him <laughs> over Mantle on, on the Mount Rushmore and say this guy, this guy was just the most important player. And I mean, Mantle was just, he had come up in 51, and he was having trouble, you know, hitting the ball and not striking out. The Mago, his last three years of his career, were uh, one year he missed half the year, another year he hit two sixty three in his last year, and he had one good year but not as good as the one that Yogi had. Yogi was the guy. And I don't think most people realize that when they think of Yankee all time. I mean, the Yankees are so storied. But when you think of of the Yankees and, and all the Hall of Famers and you don't put Yogi in the top four, that's where he belongs.
4: Wow. There's a yogiism in there somewhere. Uh, something he would say like, you know, he's the fifth face on Mount Rushmore or something. There, I'm right. sure you can work that in. So the uh, St. Louis Jewish Book Festival, which is the early part of November, it's like the first uh, week, and your talk is on Wednesday, November 4th at 7 o'clock. People can look up the uh, book festival online, find out ways to participate in that virtual book festival. Everything's got to be virtual anymore, but they still want to do it, which is great. They've been doing it for so many decades. Right. It's just and an it's, awesome such a thing good,
0: it's such a good one and i've I've done a lot of the zoom talks and you know what i think people are starting to just just kind of get used to this is this is the way i see my grand my grandkid on one side and my mother 9 year mother-in-law on the other side i mean this is how we've conducted family holidays over zoom so you know i think people are kind of getting used to this is the way it is until we finally can come out of our houses
4: yeah now if people wanted to check out your book and check you out where can they find your work
0: uh, my, you can uh, the book Amazon is probably a really is probably the easiest place to get it. Um, it's also at Barnes and Nobles, and and we've I've really been trying to to push people towards their independent bookstores, um, and, and I have a deal with one here just to per, to help promote the book because um, you know local businesses have really gotten hit hard during this. So you know if people can can go out and buy the books at, at their local bookstores that w- that would really help, um, and at JohnPessa.com. Um both my, my first book and this book are excerpted there, uh links to both of them, along with work that I uh wrote at ESPN magazine, uh which I helped start and and things I did there. So that's John J O N Pessa P E S S A H dot com.
4: So yeah, John J O N Pessa. And right. one last question. Do you ever have dreams about Yogi Berra?
0: Oh my God. <laughs> I'll tell you, when you when you when you spend 24 seven for four years. Um, You know, it's all you think of. I woke up thinking about him. I would wake up four in the morning thinking about, you know, okay, so what happened? You know, let's, let's write that 49 scene now, you know, which was a great world series or, you know, let's do the perfect game. This is really good. Or let's, You know, when he was sat down with Ronald Reagan at a state dinner um, at the the president's table. Um, Yeah, um, I I dreamt about him. I felt that he was living here with me. um, And that was fun. All
4: right, John Bessa. just do a quick search for him. Better yet, why don't you participate this year virtually as part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. His night is Wednesday, November 4th. An author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. So many great moments and memories from St. Louis in that book. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX.
0: Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Really, really a lot of fun. Looking forward to uh, doing those St. Louis Book Fair, too.
4: I just think it's great. And the it's virtual, so anyone listening right now, you don't actually have to be there in person. You can watch it from the comfort of your home. So if you love hearing memories of St. Louis and the Hill and just Yogi Bear in general, I'm sure you'll get a lot of laughs and a kick out of that one. So great. All right, so joining us right after the break, we're going to take a look at your weather. Things are getting a little bit chilly. Another participant, someone else that's going to be at the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival this year, and wrote a book on one of the most notorious war criminals, uh, Mengele. He is someone that is known as like the nine. Nazi doctor. He did all these terrible, horrific experimentations. It's such a weird transition between these two authors and the two subjects, I should say. Not so much the authors, but the two subjects. So uh, we're going to talk about that coming up next after the break. A real fascinating look at history there in World War II. It's Overnight America, KMOX.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call
3: silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy.
4: And Overnight America continues. It's a little different subject from our first half hour of the show, but also this year, as part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival, is an author that's joining us now for the next couple of segments. He wrote a book um, really about one of the most notorious war criminals of all time, pretty well known, Mengele Unmasking the Angel of Death. David Marwell, thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. My pleasure, Ryan. How are you? Good. Very good. So you're also going to be part of the, the book festival virtual this year. Your night is Friday night, November 6th. Well, it's during the day, it's at two right. o'clock. Uh, and nice thing about the virtual is that anyone that has an interest in this subject can learn an awful lot and it's a little bit more intimate and personal and they can participate this way like they were in person, which is always great because there's so many great topics that are covered as part of this book festival. It's one of the great things that happen here in St. Louis. The The topic itself, one of the most notorious war criminals of all time, and this person is become I think popular in recent days I didn't know who this was when I was growing up it wasn't really covered in the history books if it was maybe I wasn't paying attention in high school or college but it wasn't until recent years when I think there's been a, a deeper dive and more interest in documenting the tragedies of World War II and when you, when you look at some of the mo- notable names that were part of the Nazis and when we talk about Mengele I I am just uh, shocked that number one, any human being would be capable of doing the things he was doing. I'm sure it must've been a very difficult thing for you to research.
2: Well, it it was, you know, uh, Ryan, I, I uh, was, I used to work for the department of justice and I was assigned to the case back in 1985 to try to, to find Mengele. And uh, we instead found a body in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil and, then attempted to determine whether the body was Mengele's or not. And that really was my first connection with the Mengele case. And I had thought about it for, well, since 1985. And when I I stepped down from my last job as a director of a museum in New York, I decided that I was going to write a book about the investigation. And that's what got me back into the subject. And in doing that, I discovered a tremendous amount that had been written about Mengele since 1985 and since I had been involved in the case. And it led me to really expand my inquiry beyond the investigation into where he was and how he escaped justice into a biography of the man himself.
4: Yeah, and really the first time I heard about him was when Glenn Beck would talk about him on his radio program maybe five or six years ago. And he he Uh got really into the history side of things. And then you hear these things, and it's just, you're just, you're taken back and you're, you're thinking to yourself, how in the world could this happen? As in, how could all of, how could a person uh, be just so, I really don't know how to say it. It's, it's almost like, how can a, a human brain operate in such a way where they can conduct certain experiments and, and act in a way in, uh, to other human beings like that? It just boggles my mind.
2: Well, it, it is a it's a hard thing to get your mind around, um, but one of the things that I that I discovered in the course of my work was that Mengel was far different than than I had imagined him to be. I had, like you, I imagine, had thought of Mengel as some kind of uh, out of control monster uh, who was satisfying uh, base instincts and grotesque. Uh, motives in in what he was doing but it turns out that Mengele was actually um much different um he was a very well educated uh, in fact received an elite education um, several of his professors at the university in Munich and elsewhere in Germany had been um awarded the Nobel Prize and he was considered a bright light one of the really uh exciting young scientists within the nazi scientific establishment, and he pursued his science with a great deal of seriousness and zeal and um this surprised me greatly he had actually two phds he had a phd in anthropology and also a phd in academic degree in medicine not only a license to practice medicine but he pursued an advanced degree in medicine that would permit him to teach at the university and to run um, a laboratory. So he wasn't this kind of uh, strange, off-the-rails kind of mad scientist. He was a person who pursued um, kind of vanguard science from the German Nazi science uh, perspective.
4: Mm. A lot of people have talked about, just after the war, so many of these different war criminals that were able to escape and evade being able to be found. Some people would even go a little more conspiratorial, and they would say that they were allowed to do it based on information they had. And for all these years, you know, even to recent years, we've seen... Television programs, Nazi hunters that want to go and find anyone that may still be alive to hold them uh, accountable for the terrible things they've done. They don't care if they're 98 years old. They still want to make sure they're held accountable for the crimes, even though they've been evading things for so long. So when you start to research this, investigate this as part of the uh, Justice Department, and you look into this in the 80s, did it kind of surprise you even in the 80s that it took that long to find him so far removed from World War II? Well, first of all,
2: we didn't find him, and we we found we found a body. He had been dead already six years before we even began the investigation. So it shows uh, a, a a failure of of justice in that sense. And not only not only did we not succeed in finding him, but the Germans who had a valid arrest warrant for him failed to find him, and the Israelis who had uh, arguably the best motive. To find him also failed to find him so he and the reason is because he uh he, he um, although many imagined him to have had a, a life on the run in south america you know living in some kind of uh jungle redoubt with with uh, beautiful women and and cigarette boats in the on the river and and barking dogs and jackbooted guards he had a very modest existence. One could almost say a squalid existence, Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, very, very uh, modest circumstances. And um, from the the end of the 1950s until his death in 1979, he was in constant fear that he would be captured. Um, Mm -hmm. Unlike the early part of his, I mean, he, he, he left Auschwitz in January of 1945 and um, made his way at, toward Germany um, and was uh, able to e- evade captors, but eventually was actually taken into custody by the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was not uh, identified as Joseph Mengele, the, the physician at Auschwitz, was able to be released from uh, American captivity and went underground in Germany for a few years and then... With the help of his family, which was a very wealthy family that that had a a major industry in the town where he grew up, he was able with the family money to make his way uh, from Europe, uh, from Germany into Austria, through the Brenner Pass into Italy, and then to the seaports in Italy to Genoa, and then uh, by ship in 1949 to, to Argentina, where he lived for about a decade without anyone looking for him and without any real threat. To him He lived under an assumed name, but it was so in the end so comfortable that he gave up his assumed name and re, uh, and re reassumed his his true identity as joseph Mangala or in in South America it was jose Mangala and uh, it wasn't until the end of uh, around nineteen fifty eight when he received word from his family that the German justice officials were beginning to to snoop around in in his hometown. And then he, 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 he went underground, went to Paraguay. And it really wow. wasn't until the Israelis kidnapped, captured uh, Adolf Eichmann in 1960 that he realized he couldn't be safe anywhere. And he really went underground, took on another assumed name, and went to Brazil. And that's where he lived for the, for the rest of his life.
4: You would think uh, if people are looking for you, instead of changing your first name, you would change your last name.
2: <laughs> it's something less well, notorious. No, at that time, he wasn't. Yeah, you're right. But at that time, he wasn't really afraid, and he didn't have. He really didn't have reason to be afraid because no one was really looking for him until 1958, and uh, he thought that if he went to Paraguay and got Paraguayan citizenship, which he was able to do through fraud, um, that he would be safe because the Paraguayans, uh, by law, could not extradite. Uh, a Paraguayan citizen, but when the Israelis uh, captured Eichmann, he realized that that he wasn't safe, even in the country that would have protected him uh, because of his citizenship. So yeah. that's when he 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 went went to Brazil and lived lived uh, in several different places, protected by by several families and by his family's money.
4: Yeah, I'd say that'd be a pretty easy exception um by the government to to yeah. give him up if if captured. I have so many more questions for him. do you mind holding on after the yeah, break? Sure. So I'm, the, I'm the book is out, uh yeah. Mengala unmasking the angel of death. He's one of the most notorious war criminals uh, of the Nazi Party, World War II, and author David Marwell will be participating as part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival this year virtually, and his talk is on Friday, November 6th, 2 p.m. You can get the virtual tickets, participate, and, and really uh, dive deep into this by participating in the book festival. Just do a quick search, and you can find out ways to do that. We'll continue with them next on Overnight America, KMOX.
3: Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com.
4: He's the author of Mengala Unmasking the Angel of Death. Mengele being one of the most notorious war criminals uh, back in World War II and the Nazi Party. David Marwell, the author of that book, also participating in the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. It's virtual this year. You could uh, learn more about his talk, which is on Friday, November 6th at 2 p.m. on there. Definitely go check it out if this topic interests you. There's a lot of people that are interested in World War II. You know, as an author, David, I was curious about this. You're a professional. You, you know, worked with the Justice Department. You've handled many different cases, but when you research... A person as notorious as Mengele. Did you have any emotions when writing this book?
2: Well, sh- well, sure. Uh, you know, I spent. I started this on January first, twenty sixteen, and it was published uh, four years later. And for all of that time, I spent uh, literally day and night, kind of immersed in in uh, Mengele's own writings. You know, he he wrote his own kind of. Uh, autobiography in the form of a novel that was unpublished but pub- but written for his family his correspondence his diaries um i wrote i read his dissertations his, his medical research papers uh i interviewed people who knew him i interviewed his victims uh so you you become as as one should if you're going to tackle a serious subject like this you have to really steep yourself in the material. And it becomes, in a way, uh, it becomes your your world, and uh, it is not uh, an uplifting place to be. So I I, um, I was quite um, relieved when I was when I typed the last character in the last chapter and was able to send it off to the to the publisher. Um,
4: That's you hear yeah, about those it, uh, stories had... with actors, like they, they get so deep into a role. And they study it and they research it and they do everything they can and by the time the role is over, it changes their way of thinking. Like it, it, it impacted them in such a way. So when you have someone as you know, as heavy as Mengala and everything that you know about him before with your investigations, but then going back and reading and learning and then writing and compiling all of these things, that's I mean that's a lot of weight to uh, to put on your mind. I mean, that, that's that gotta be yeah. a difficult thing. You can't just like drop that when you're done and say, okay, on to the next thing. That, that's gotta be one of those things that are just, uh, impossible as a writer to, to ever be able to, you know, be, it probably changes you in, in the way that you live after that.
2: Well, it, it, ta- it, it, it does have an impact on you and, and it has an impact on your family. I can tell you, my, my wife was, was, was as pleased as anyone that we, we kicked Joe Mengele out of our house, um, and 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 got through with him but it also is it's a necessary um it's necessary to immerse yourself that way if you really want to try to uh, try to understand uh the subject matter because it's too easy with a character like Mangala, who's too easy to write off as some kind of uh you know a supernatural monster um it's m- much more difficult to try to come to terms with the the human being that he was, and try to understand what what uh, what motivated him, and also try, if you can, to to uh, distill uh, some some lessons from from what you're what you're working on. It's not simply to um, you know to kind of satisfy your your own uh, interest. It's really to try to 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 make this
4: history somehow
2: useful. Mm. And so, so what lessons a, do you come to? It's a serious to? matter. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and you say you, you tried to, to come to some conclusions, some lessons to learn from this part of history. What what are some of those lessons that you've learned, and other people should learn?
2: Well, I I, I think one of the things about Mengel, and I've already, I've kind of hinted at this already, is that um, he became uh, um, because of the the uh, I, I can't exactly say why this happened, but but he became much more notorious. In 1985, when I first looked at him, and in, in 2015, when I first started the book, and even today in 2020, than he was in 1945. Except, of course, to his victims. But in terms of the popular imagination, as you mentioned, uh, uh, he he in 1945 he was known to his colleagues and to the people who the people who survived uh, contact with him, but not not many other people. And it wasn't until he became a kind of uh, figure in popular culture you know if you remember the you're probably too young to remember this but the boys from brazil the movie about the cloning of hitler the the marathon man with um, dustin hoffman uh there's the famous play the deputy there's there's a number of works of fiction which created of Mengele this kind of darkest figure in history he became a kind of malign metaphor for evil when I started the book in, in, uh, in uh, 2015, I, start, I set up a Google alert for any time Mengele's name was mentioned anywhere you know on the internet, anywhere in the world press. And y- you may not believe this, but it is true that I would say almost every single day, I get an alert from somewhere on the internet that, that Mengele's name has been mentioned. And since the coronavirus um, pandemic four, five, six, sometimes eight mentions a day because Mengla has become the kind of benchmark for evil um, and so when, when when someone carries that kind of symbolic weight, you lose sight of, of the actual man behind that and if you look at the man behind that you find something that really might be useful for us to consider today um, and that is a person who was so steeped and fascinated by the science that he was working on and so Seduced by the lack of any limits placed on him, when he went to Auschwitz, he had access to almost an unlimited number of uh, experimental subjects, and um, without the kind of restraints that that uh, scientific ethics and a scientific community that is mat- that is responsible will place on you, if you let your ambition run. And your and your curiosity, when you can do horrible things, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So I think the the lesson we can learn here, especially in days where you know the Nobel Prize for Chemistry was just awarded to the the two women chemists who who discovered this gene editing technique called CRISPR. You can't. I mean, one can't imagine what what someone like Mengele, without restraints, without without uh, uh, ethical uh, boundaries. Would would do with that kind of scientific power. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to be a genius to do CRISPR, and you don't have to be a, a millionaire to be able to afford the equipment and everything else. So, it's really a question of what what when science is unregulated and unimpeded, and when ambition can can have its way, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it can create really horrible wow. results.
4: Yeah. Uh, So again, uh, before we go, David Marwell, you're going to be part of the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. It's virtual this year. Your uh, talk is on Friday, November 6th, 2 p.m. If you want to find ways to get tickets, people can look you up online. And of course, your book is on Amazon. Mengele, Unmasking the Angel of Death. Very fascinating book. Very fascinating talk. And anyone that uh, loves history or knows someone that loves history, pick it up during the Amazon Prime Week. You know, that's going on the next few days. David, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Overnight America. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. We'll take a look at your news coming up next on KMOX.
3: We really need new
4: phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone
3: 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? Over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch.